0: Hello, this is Professor Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law Effect. Fact. Today we are talking contracts. In this episode, I speak about the statute of frauds with Professor Darren Rosenblum, professor of law at the Elizabeth Help School of Law at Pace University. Professor Rosenblum teaches contracts, corporations, and international business transactions and serves as the Director of the Business Law Concentration, Director of Commercial and Private International Law Programs, and Faculty Advisor of the Institute for International and Commercial Law. His scholarship focuses on corporate governance, in particular on remedies for sexual inequality. Here's our discussion on the statute of frauds. All right, so this is fun. I've never done this in front of a live studio audience before. <laughs> Listen to by tens of thousands, well, 10,000 10, people we have so far, so we'll see. Um, anyway, welcome, Professor Rosenblum. It's nice to see you and hear you. So I want to talk today, we're both contracts professors, but I want to talk about statute of frauds, which is important to law students and bar exam takers because it is always tested on the bar exam and often tested by professors. So what is the statute of frauds?
1: Well, and it's not just that it's always tested. It's also a common presumption of contracts that they have to be in writing. When people come to law school and start taking contracts, they often assume that oral contracts were unenforceable when, in fact, they are enforceable. The question is, when are they enforceable? Right. And the statute of frauds is the rule that delineates when they're enforceable.
0: When written contracts are enforceable.
1: Or when oral oral contracts contracts are are enforceable. enforceable. Um, Because often (laughs) they are uh, not enforceable. Um, But the law delineates the specific context in which that's true. Now, the law has a, a sort of interesting history going back to the 17th century when there was a dispute over uh, a fighting cock. They had cockfighting back then, which they still have. They still have now, yeah. In in parts of Latin America. Um, uh, And so there was a dispute over whether a sale took place, and it came out after a court held in favor of one party that that was based on false information. And this case... Um, became a famous case, and Parliament passed the statute of frauds to require certain kinds of contracts be in writing in order to force some sort of order into the rules governing contracts. And because this is at the time that um, the United Kingdom held dominion over so much of the world Mm -hmm. um, as the dominant empire of the time, the statute of frauds is still existing in all common law countries in a pretty consistent fashion. And the basic idea of the statute of frauds is that there's a certain set of contracts that are a little bit more complicated Mm -hmm. um, per se. And because of that, they need to be in writing in order to be enforceable.
0: And that's where the word fraud comes in, because the purpose of the statute of frauds, correct, is to these are the types of contracts that lend themselves to fraud so that when the parties are trying to prove them, there's a propensity to lie, and how are we going to prove who did it, or who signed it, rather, if it was in, if it was only oral? And, and the writing is evidence of the existence of that contract. Right,
1: exactly. It's basically a, a rule that contracts of a certain type that might have a propensity to invite sketchy behavior... Have to be in writing. Perfect, and, and and that's not an explanation for all of the rules here, but generally all the rules. The other thing that comes in with the statute of frauds that we today and consider is that there are rules um, from the UCC governing that certain contracts of a certain value, either over five hundred or five thousand, depending on the jurisdiction. Uh, dollars must be in writing. And we consider that, even though formally speaking that's not really part of the statute of frauds, we learn it in the same space and contracts because it's a writing requirement.
0: Right. And, and we'll talk about that when we get to goods because it's a little bit tricky sometimes. But, yes. Um, all right. So then there's that famous mnemonic, right, for right. deciding what contracts need to be in writing. Right. And the mnemonic is
1: my legs. So it's marriage contracts, year or longer contracts, land contracts, executors, E, executors, uh, to pay the debts of an estate, goods contracts, that's the G, and the last is surety contracts. So let's just quickly go through these, and then um, I would focus a little bit more on the year contract, which I think is a little bit... Yeah, the year uh, re- one tends to requires get... Requires yeah. a lot of uh, more nuance and mm-hmm. often comes up in the bar. Um, so a marriage contract speaks for itself. Um, the idea is that um, uh, often historically, um, as part of a mar- an agreement to marry, there would be an exchange of a dowry historically, and as a result, um, there might be presumptions of some sort of interaction between the parties. And the idea was that that contract had to be in writing to be enforceable. Now, typically, when we see, you know, all the, the proposals, whether it's in the middle of Yankee Stadium or, uh, or uh, you know, yeah. people singing in the street, it's all oral. Right. Are those promises enforceable? Morally speaking, yes. But as a legal matter, not necessarily. Right. because they have to be in writing.
0: And prenups have to be in writing, too. So, Absolutely. Because this goes back to dowry. So any, any agreement in anticipation of marriage has to be in writing.
1: Absolutely. Um, and the point of this, again, is that there might be, it's, it, it's not necessarily that people are deceptive about marriage per se, but that it's such a significant life event and I think the real estate contracts fall into the same mm-hmm. category, mm-hmm. it's such a significant event mm-hmm. that it's too important to leave to an oral contract. Right,
0: right. Makes sense.
1: Let's move on to the year contract, which <coughs> is a little thorny. Right. So the basic idea, the, the policy behind this, is that contracts that take longer to execute should be in writing. Right. That's the general idea but the way that we've come to interpret the year rule is a little bit more specific. It's basically this, that if the parties specify that a contract will take more than a year to to execute, then it must be in writing. Right. But if they don't specify that it'll take more than a year, you can't just assume that it has to be in writing because it's likely to take more than a year. So, for example, there's the Kluin the case, which we yeah, both that's, teach. Yeah, that's
0: the, that's the best example. Which
1: is a great example because it's a contract that's in, that's unusual. It's an oral contract for the construction of 18 buildings on the campus of the University of Connecticut, which, as we can imagine, is likely, almost necessarily going to take more than a year to execute. Right. But the parties did not say it would take more than a year to execute it. And so the court enforced the oral agreement, even though it was unlikely to be completed within a year. Why? Because the court will only enforce the year rule if the parties specify that the plan is to complete it in more than one year,
0: and the court in that and it case is said,
1: conceivable. Sorry, right?
0: No, <laughs> it is conceivable. <laughs> yeah, they could hire like a could, bunch of people. And, right. right in
1: China, they they build cities in in a right, year. Right, they certainly theoretically could build all these buildings right. in
0: a year, and that shows too, like why the courts do not like the statute of frauds—that they would rule in you know in favor of not needing the statute of frauds in a case like that shows just from a theoretical value how the courts feel about the statute
1: right of fraud. right courts are reticent to enforce the statute of right. frauds or to limit contracts on that basis why because there's a general proclivity within contract law generally to favor contract formation we see that throughout contract doctrine and that's true here as well. I want to. So I just want
0: to interrupt you for one more yeah. second because the other thing I want to say about yours is lifetime contracts. This was right. on my contract exam, yes, which a lot of people missed, but some got. Which is contracts for a lifetime. Do not need to be in writing. Right. So if I promise that I will be your research assistant for your life, you're young enough that you're hopefully going to live a very long life, right? Right. The fact of the matter is that you could, God forbid, die tomorrow, and then I could not perform that contract in a year or more. Right. So contracts that are measured by someone else's life are not required to be in writing under the statute of frauds.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I just talked today about uh, the Tuckweiler case. Oh, well, yeah, my favorite which case. Which also case. involves a similar scenario yeah. in which there's a commitment for labor, which is caretaking um, for the lifetime of the older woman who had Parkinson's, Mrs. Morrison. And if that were not in writing, um, it would still be enforceable. Because it's not necessarily the case Correct. that it will take more than a year. Right. So again, right. the rule for the year mm-hmm. contract, which encompasses the piece that you added, the lifetime point, is that only when parties specify more than a year must it be in writing. And a lifetime is not necessarily more than a year. Perfect. Sadly, right, we have no control over <laughs> right. how long we live. The third um, step in the My Legs mnemonic is land contracts. It speaks for itself. A contract for the purchase or sale or rental of land must be in writing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the basic principle that we saw in marriage. It's that it's a typical kind of contract that's too important to leave to an oral contract. Another fun case that we cover in contracts is... um, the um, Lucy v. Zemmer case, right? And there's an unusual contract right. in that context, which is on the back of a bar tab, but it is in writing, and so it constitutes an enforceable contract. Right. You right. old Virginie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so land contracts, I think, are pretty straightforward, and that consists, that, the enforceability of that is consistent with. What first-year students learn in property law about the complexity involved in transfers of property. Yes, yes. Um, the fourth is e executors, mm-hmm. and so ex- contracts for an executor to pay a debt of an estate is part of. I think um, this and the last one, surety contracts, are co- are specific kinds of contracts. That are subject to sketchy behavior because, and we've seen this, there's so many examples of this. The recent story about the son of Mrs. Astor, who was cheating the estate, um, is a good one. There's Mm -hmm. all sorts of stories about Leona Helmsley's estate, um, uh, where she left... What was it, $11 million for, for her a dog. dog? Right.
0: So Leona um. Helsley was, she was called the queen of mean, and they owned real estate. And, and she actually, just a little side note, she was convicted of tax evasion. Do you know what day she went to, went to jail? What day? April
1: 15th. Oh, there you they go. she sent her on right, tax day. Right. Just
0: anyway, yes. <laughs> to
1: make an example Yeah,
0: to make her. an example of her. Deterrence. See, criminal law can come into contracts <laughs> at any moment. All right, so, yeah.
1: um, so an executor pays the debt of an estate. Mm-hmm. Um, when the estate owes money, why does an estate owe money? It could be because the person whose estate it is entered into a contract as we know, contracts entered into by people are enforceable even after their death. right, right.
0: So once and, you've signed it, right, exactly. death can end <laughs> an offer. Debt but, can terminate an offer, but it doesn't terminate a contract.
1: Exactly, and so these are contracts that survive the person who entered into the contract, and the debt must be paid, mm-hmm. and it must be paid by somebody. That somebody is the executor, right? Who is the person who enforces the will of the um, of the decedent? And the problem is that this might give rise to all sorts of sketchy things in which the executor will say, oh, well, the decedent wanted this and the decedent wanted that. Mm -hmm. The decedent wanted... It happened that the decedent wanted $1,000 of flowers to go to my mistress. Right. Right? Right. That's what the court is worried about. Um, uh, Or, sorry, that's what the law is worried about in the statute of frauds example. So contracts for executors to pay a debt of an estate must be in writing for that reason. It could... Be something that that um, is rife is rife for abuse because the person whose wishes are concerned is no longer around to testify. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to goods. Goods, yes. And so goods this is your expertise. It is. Professor. And I, I do actually want Rather to. <laughs> than mine, do you want to
0: take this. I do. One? I do. So the reason it's my expertise is because goods are covered by the Uniform Commercial Code. The Uniform Commercial Code is a code that all the states have adopted that regulate the sale of goods which are movable and transferable at the time of contracting. And it is true that goods over $500, according to the UCC, $5,000 by statute in certain jurisdictions, must be in writing. It seems so easy. However, it's important to note that while a contract for the sale of goods must be in writing, that the code also allows parties to have a contract, even if the contract's not in writing, if they act like there's a contract. So if you're analyzing this, the first thing you want to do is say, if this is a good for that number amount, 500, 5,000, is it in writing? If it's not in writing, before you say, oh, unenforceable, you have to say, well, wait a second. Is this the type of situation where the code would say that the parties have a contract, even though it's not in writing? If they act like it's a contract, if the parties have started to perform, that type of thing. So while goods have to be in writing, if it's over $500, that's not an absolute. It is just a requirement unless, again, as I've said for the third time now, um, the courts can construct a contract based on behavior.
1: Right. Um, absolutely, and so um, a- and the idea behind that is that the price is a marker of the significance
0: Correct. of the contract. That's absolutely right. And so
1: the five hundred is the older rule, and and jurisdictions have adopted. A newer standard to reflect inflation,
0: basically. Yeah, yeah, but not as many. How many? I mean, it's
1: only a few. Not that many, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that just reflects laziness on the part of legislatures. Yes. Because really, $5,000 yeah. is the fair amount.
0: Well, yeah, um, because most good contracts are for, you know, sales, yeah. so, but there's a lot of merchant, you know merchandise and yeah. selling car parts and that kind of right, thing. Right, right. All right, let's go on to S. And then S is the
1: last Which in some senses is the ugliest Mm -hmm. of the the, um, contracts that go into the statute of frauds because it's not always clear what a surety is. Right. Um, A surety is a promise to pay the debts of another. So it's kind of like a guarantor. Right. Which many of our students are familiar with because often when they need to rent an apartment, they need their parents to co-sign or guarantee their mm-hmm. lease. Right. Um, or their student loan. Right guarantee for a loan, yeah. Right? A shorty contract is like a guarantee in that it's an agreement to pay the debts of another. Mm-hmm. And the reason that this must be in writing is that one could easily imagine allegations thrown about orally that a person is responsible for somebody's debts without an actual commitment. So one could say, if we have three people, party A owes money to party B, and party A knows that party C is incredibly wealthy, party A could say to party B, oh, C is going to take care of it. Right. Right? It's like you're out to dinner, and you're going to skip out early, and you've had six else? Right. which is going to cost $200 <laughs> and you say to the bartender oh C is going to cover it mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. why is that not okay because everybody is going to say somebody else is responsible for their own debts
0: right and that goes back to this whole idea of fraud that's an easy way yeah to lie to the courts right. that I, you know, she said it, you know. Right, exactly. Or he said it.
1: And so the courts, <sighs> so the statute of frauds imposes a writing requirement mm-hmm. on this specific kind of contract. Mm-hmm. If part, one party, if C, in fact, is going to pay A's debts, then C, ha, then A has to get it in writing. Right. For it to be enforceable. Perfect. All right? Yeah. So just to sum up, it's my legs, marriage, marriage. Year, land, executors, goods, and surety contracts, and these contracts must be in writing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, an oral contract is perfectly fine.
0: So, and and let me just say, so if you were doing this from kind of an analytical standpoint, once you have an offer, once you have con- acceptance, once you have consideration, you have technically a contract. And then the question becomes, is that contract enforceable? And that's when you say to yourself, let me look at my legs to see, even though I have offer acceptance and consideration, is this enforceable? Let me see if it's enforceable under the statute of frauds. There's other reasons, too, but statute of frauds is the one we're talking about today.
1: Exactly. And so on an exam, you might want to, before you go through with an analysis on promissory stop or some other theory, you might just want to scan whether the facts suggest that there is a statute of frauds issue. Perfect. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This was fun. Really fun. Thank you, Professor Tenzer. Thank
0: you. That's my discussion with Professor Darren Rosenblum on statute of frauds. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks to www.bensound for the music. If you like us, please subscribe on iTunes. Or send us a tweet at Law of Fact if you have a particular topic you'd like us to speak about or a particular professor with whom we should speak. That's it for today. Enjoy.